Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, and you can check out all of my written work there. Quipster.net is where to go, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to click the link that connects to my other podcast. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I look at more recent movies out in theaters and on VOD. Quipster.net is where to go for that. Today I'm going to be getting into the third of this three-part series, looking at films in which the main villain is some sort of slime or ooze or gunk, or in this case today, a liquid of a sort. I looked at the blob, I looked at the stuff. This week I'm going to be going to more of a uh, horrific, less comedic take on some of this. Prince of Darkness from 1987, though it's not without some sense of humor. Prince of Darkness is an R-rated film. It does have gore, pervasive violence, sexual references, and language. The runtime is an hour and 42 minutes. The cast includes Donald Pleasance, Jameson Parker, Victor Wong, Lisa Blunt, Dennis Dunn, Susan Blanchard, Anne-Marie Howard, Anne Yen, and many others, including Peter Jason, Alice Cooper. John Carpenter is the writer, as well as the screenwriter, although he is credited as Martin Quatermass for reasons I will get to in just a few minutes. As far as what the film is about, well, I've watched this film twice over the last week, and some of it is still elusive to me, but just bear with me here. We start with this premise, the diary of a reclusive priest named Father Carlton. It reveals a centuries-old secret sect within the Catholic Church called the Brotherhood of Sleep. Father Carlton was on the verge of revealing their existence to the archbishop, that this brotherhood is guarding an ancient cylinder that's filled with green fluid that's hidden in the basement of this abandoned 16th century built chapel residing in Los Angeles. There's a dormant entity inside the cylinder, and it's being awakened by the force, presumably, of this distant supernova that has exploded long, long ago, hundreds of millions of years ago. But the chaotic chain reaction of that supernova is now beginning to disrupt order on Earth. Now, a different priest discovers this diary and also a key to the basement, and there he encounters the cylinder as well as a mysterious book that's written in ancient languages containing mathematical and physics references. This priest, who's not named in the film, he contacts his former TV debate sparring partner, an advanced physics professor named Howard Birak, to decipher what it all means. Now, Birak brings in a team of graduate students to help him investigate, and collectively they start to experience these tachyon transmissions. There are apparently messages from the future warning about the reemergence of an ancient evil. This book that they found reveals things that are contrary to what they once believed. Jesus was a descendant of a human-like extraterrestrial race, 
and he was killed for delivering these scientific warnings that nobody really understood. They thought he was crazy. His disciples hid these warnings until such a time when science could catch up and decode these scientific warnings. The church, meanwhile, lied publicly, telling followers that evil lies within them and it could be controlled through faith. Meanwhile, the prince of darkness, the devil, Satan, has remained dormant in this cylinder there. For 2,000 years, he's been placed there by his father, the anti-god. And the anti-god is an entity that once roamed the earth before humankind's existence, but now resides within subatomic antimatter and awaits for a time for his son to reemerge to help him, the anti-god, cross from this subatomic dimension through mirrors into the material world. Now, something is growing in the prebiotic fluid. It's leaking up toward the ceiling. It squirts into the mouths of the students, and it uses psychokinetic energy to turn them evil. Satan here, searching for a host to find a way to bring himself into the world and to help his father escape, which would result in pretty much doom for all humankind. Now, that's what I got out of the film. Your interpretation may differ somewhat. But it is one of those films that gives you just enough to kind of understand, but not enough to be fully aware of what's going on at all times. Now, to understand how this film came about, you have to understand the mindset of John Carpenter at the time. He had just suffered a critical and commercial disappointment in 1986's Big Trouble in Little China, and he felt at that time he needed a breather. He loved being a filmmaker, especially of a big-time studio films, but working within the studio system was sucking out his soul. Dishonest money man dominated. The commitment to quality films seemed secondary to financial success. Studio execs, they made the most important decisions while directors like him were seen as merely hired hands. He had to haggle with corporate suits over just about every idea, and it started to insult his integrity. He seemed like he was constantly being questioned, and his creative decisions were falling on deaf ears, most of the time, to the point where he didn't even feel like being creative was worth it. If they're only going to change whatever he comes up with, he felt like directors and actors and other creative talent were looked at like whores, doing anything for money. Now, Carpenter at the time, he was so burnt out by all of this, he decided to take a hiatus from filmmaking. He started spending his time reading, watching television, and one of the books that he picked up while he was traveling around promoting Big Trouble was called The Cosmic Code. It was written by Heinz Pagels, and it was an explanation of quantum physics concepts in easy-to-understand terms. Pagels' book explores the subatomic realm, and it describes constant matter and antimatter interactions going on that no human can see, and where the logical order that humans have applied to science is not bound. Concepts here describe perception as changing the nature of both the perceiver and the perceived. Now, this may not necessarily make a lot of sense in this summary, but in reading the book, it really blew Carpenter's mind. It reminded him of a conversation that he once had back over 10 years prior with screenwriter Dan O'Bannon during their Dark Star days about imperceptible microscopic events that were shaping the world around us that we had no idea about. Now, Pagel's book also describes this account by a man with mental illness describing how aliens infected human minds with this unknown substance that controlled them through technological devices. And Carpenter thought a lot of these concepts would make for a very interesting movie, but he knew that this was going to be a hard sell to studios who really didn't have 
any creative bones in their bodies, according to him. He longed for his early days when he had a lot more fun making movies his way, despite really almost no money. He talked to some of his peers, and getting him out of his filmmaking funk was a fellow low-budget feature creator named Charles Band, somebody Carpenter had worked for back in his early days. In 1973, he was editor of his sex spoof called Last Foxtrot in Burbank. Now, Charles Band suggested Carpenter work for his film company, Empire Pictures, making low-budget films, usually pretty schlocky, but Carpenter was intrigued, but he had just gotten a new talent agency called ICM Partners, and they decided that they should shop around his talent to other independent film houses that could invest more money than Empire and who were willing to give him carte blanche to make a low-budget movie his way. Shortly afterward, Carpenter found himself signing a deal with Shep Gordon and Andre Blaze Alive Films to make four movies within the course of five years for a budget of about three to five million dollars each. Under their agreement, Carpenter pitched film concepts, and if they found it acceptable, they would assign a budget, and then Carpenter could make his film his way without any interference so long as he did not violate the contract by going either over budget or over schedule. The first film that he pitched was Prince of Darkness. He pitched it as merely the devil buried under an abandoned 16th century Los Angeles church, and a college professor and his graduate students arrive to analyze what's found as part of this extra credit weekend project. Carpenter also had an idea for a second film at this time, the sci-fi satire They Live. I talked about that on a previous episode. He also had a third film lined up, a time travel actioner that was written by his, his partner and script supervisor Sandy King called Victory Out of Time. He also had a, a few ideas for what the fourth and final film could be, but he felt he would decide later which of those he liked best. Now, Alive Films funded $3 million for Prince of Darkness, and immediately they sold the domestic distribution and home video rights to MCA Universal for North America and Kuroko Pictures for foreign markets. This deal gave Alive Films a lucrative profit before Carpenter even shot a single frame, and that really took the pressure off of Carpenter to have to make decisions that were commercial over being creative. Carpenter was excited to craft a horror movie with quantum mechanics governing the plot. He was fascinated by subatomic particles and their crazy behavior and the way that you could view logic and reality and the world around us in a completely different light. Now, Carpenter is somebody who finds comfort in control, so the notion of chaos guiding the world around him was both captivating as well as terrifying. He wondered why nobody had delved into this topic in mainstream horror. The notion of evil existing within antimatter, it fits in with Carpenter's disbelief in Satan as a personified being. In Carpenter's mind, Lucifer was once an angel in heaven. If Lucifer became evil in this holiest of holy place, Carpenter posited that evil must exist everywhere, unseen as if on a subatomic level. And if it can exist in heaven, then it can exist everywhere, including in a church. Combining these ideas were also story elements from other things he was reading at the time, including Gregory Benford's book, Timescape, where scientists communicate a warning from the future with subatomic tachyon particles, as well as Jean Cocteau's films like Orpheus and its traversal between realms of the living and the dead using a mirror. Carpenter added elements of The Exorcist with its innocent female as evil's entryway into the world. But the biggest homage, and I alluded it to it earlier, for his first solo screenplay since Escape from New York, Carpenter used the pseudonym of Martin Quatermass because he wanted to do an homage to the Nigel Neal scripted 
Quatermass movie series, and to acknowledge Neil for his uncredited screenwriting on Halloween 3. Even though Carpenter says Neil was not a very pleasant person to work with, he was very mean and he made fun of people that didn't deserve it, but homage is also paid through a character transferring from Neil University. Carpenter loved Neil's knack for merging religion and science with paranormal horror mythology to warn of the evils that might overtake the world. Carpenter deliberately wanted to change his name here, not only because he felt that so many of the concepts that he was making in this film were borrowed from other sources, so he didn't feel right taking full credit for it, but he also wanted to pay tribute to this film series that most audiences may not know about so that they would research the works of Nigel Neal, this brilliant writer that inspired a lot of what Carpenter was writing here as well as in his other films. He even created a phony persona for Martin Quatermass. He referred to him as the most cooperative and nicest guy he'd ever worked with, even though it was himself. He knows how to rewrite the script exactly how he wants. The promotional material even lists a bio for Quatermass as being from London with a degree in theoretical physics from Neal University, of course fictional, and he now lives in Fraser Park, California with his wife Janet. He had written two novels, Schrodinger's Revenge as well as Schwarzschild Radius, and Carpenter initially had envisioned that Prince of Darkness would be set in the 1950s, and that was meant to evoke Neil's films, which were made primarily in the 50s and 60s, but the budget would not allow for period clothing or props or vehicles, so they decided to set it in the modern day. Now, there are also similarities to Nigel Neal's 1972 BBC televised play called The Stone Tape, which Carpenter had not seen, but he had read in script form, where scientists use electronic equipment to decipher something supernatural, inadvertently unleashing a great evil in the process. Now, by the way, Neil did not know he was going to do all of this. He later in interviews expressed annoyance that the Quatermass pseudonym would have some people thinking that he wrote it. And given his contentious and adversarial relationship with Carpenter while they were scripting Halloween 3, to which he removed his name from, he regarded this homage as some sort of backhanded insult. Now, there were other inspirations that Carpenter drew from, specifically metaphysical horror author H.P. Lovecraft and his exploration of ancient creatures from alternate dimensions within our mundane world, specifically Lovecraft's story The Outsider, with its sense of foreboding and mood to instill fear, as well as the use of a mirror that reveals that the source of evil is the self. The church is named St. Godard, which presumably is named after the French director Jean-Luc Godard, and the character of Frank Windham is named after John Windham, who was the writer of novels that Carpenter really appreciated, like The Day of the Triffids and The Midwich Cuckoos. The Midwich Cuckoos, by the way, became the basis for Carpenter's remake of Village of the Damned in the 1990s. Now, Carpenter here is injecting a slower pace than most contemporary horror of the 1980s. Horror of that decade usually employed music video-style editing that seemed exciting, but it really, at least according to Carpenter, lacked a certain passion. It really smoothed away all of the interesting rough edges for him. So Carpenter instead started leaning toward German expressionism to make his movie. He wanted to use light and shadows to create this atmosphere of foreboding, and he mused that while he was making this film, that if he had made this for a studio, they probably would have made him change so much about the film, including making the graduate student scientists a comical high school teenagers from middle class families, or probably would have told them to cut out 
most of the rationale for making the film, except for the horror elements. In order to anchor the story in some sort of realism, he cast Donald Pleasance, who he had worked with a couple of times before, notably in Halloween as well as Escape from New York. He needed somebody to make that part, the part of the priest who's conflicted, believable, or the rest was not going to work. Now, as far as other casting, Carpenter, he really was a fan of the TV show Simon and Simon, and he liked Jameson Parker, one of the stars of that show, for his all-American looks that he thought would be good for the main male protagonist, at least among the graduate students, Brian Marsh. Carpenter also cast opposite him Lisa Blunt as Catherine Danforth, thinking that she had unexplored star potential that had been wasted in inferior films. He really liked Blunt because she had a different look than many other leading ladies and a slight Southern accent, which made her kind of an odd but perfect pairing for Parker. The part of Professor Barak was written for Victor Wong, who, along with Dennis Dunn, carried over from Carpenter's prior film, Big Trouble in Little China. Carpenter rationalized that many leading physicists like him are Chinese, so Wong fit the bill, and he was somebody who was grounded enough to make the dialogue seem believable. Also cast in here was the first collaboration between Carpenter and actor Peter Jason. Jason would appear in pretty much every Carpenter effort henceforth. Now, the lack of budget of this film does occasionally show, especially in the church location. They're surrounded by schizophrenic homeless people who were former members of the church that closed down in the 1950s. And that included shock rocker Alice Cooper in what turns out to be an extended cameo. Now, Shep Gordon, one of the executive producers of this film from Alive Films, happened to be Cooper's manager. And Gordon, who knew that Carpenter was a big wrestling fan, he secured backstage passes for WrestleMania 3 in Alice Cooper's hometown of Detroit, the same event where Carpenter had met Roddy Piper, the star of his movie after this one called They Live. Cooper happened to be appearing as one of the performers in WrestleMania 3. He was in Jake the Snake Roberts' corner as Roberts grappled with the Honky Tonk Man for their match in WrestleMania. Contrary to Alice Cooper's stage persona, Carpenter really found Cooper to be surprisingly a warm and personable and intelligent and talkative man. They struck up a friendship, and Cooper later visited the shoot while he was in Los Angeles as an observer. At that time, Shep Gordon suggested Carpenter should include Alice Cooper in the movie. Maybe he could play one of the zombie-like street people that patrol the outside of the church, these schizophrenics susceptible to the power of evil. Carpenter thought Cooper actually had a really good look for that part, so he cast him initially as kind of an extra, but then he expanded his role as he started to use him. Now, Cooper made a suggestion that he use this gag that he had in one of his concert performances where he impales somebody with a mic stand. It's a gag where, you know, blood looks like it's shooting out of the other side of the person using a CO2 cartridge. Carpenter asked Cooper if he could use something that would be around the church, maybe a broken bicycle frame. And Cooper did say he could probably do it with that, and so that's what they used for one of the first kills of the movie. They had one day to shoot the exteriors for the fictional Doppler Institute of Physics at the University of the Sciences. This was shot at Carpenter's real-life alma mater, USC. Church exteriors were done at uh, Little Tokyo's Union Church in Los Angeles that had been closed for some time. The congregation had moved to a new building at that time, so it was vacant. And currently today, it's the playhouse called David Henry Wong Theater, which occasionally does screen Prince of Darkness 
when people want to come by and visit the locale. The interior hallways were done on a set in Valencia, California. The basement chapel was shot in the ballroom of this condemned hotel resort in Long Beach where they had to sign waivers that they would not sue if anything happened while they were using the building. They also shot at the San Fernando Mission nearby for some other exterior work. Now, Carpenter could not afford his favorite cinematographer, Dean Cundy, because of the limited budget here. So he promoted Big Trouble in Little China's camera operator, Gary Kibbe, because he felt he had a professional eye and he also did some really good work on this 1986 Oscar-nominated short film created by Richard Mazur, who happened to play Clark in The Thing. Mazur's film was called Lovestruck and Kibbe, he felt, did a very good job there. Carpenter also could not afford any of the high-profile makeup artists that he had been accustomed to. So after having him submit sample sketches, Carpenter promoted a member of the production staff named Frank Carasosa, also known today as Francisco X. Perez or Frank Perez, because of his prior experience as part of the makeup staff. One major asset of Prince of Darkness, and I think probably the biggest asset, in my opinion, is the score, which was assisted once again by Alan Howarth. This was their sixth collaboration. Carpenter is somebody who composes his scores on the fly. He improvises his music while watching the footage, and he wants to accentuate the tone and the tempo that's needed for each particular scene. And then afterward, he starts going back over what he did and then layers other sounds as well as additional music over that initial track. For Prince of Darkness, they added orchestral sounds as well as choir voices because of the religious overtones and the church setting. Carpenter is somebody who thinks that the score of a film is the director's velvet glove. It cues the audience, it guides them on what they should be feeling or thinking along with what they're seeing and hearing. Now, Tom Bray's appearance in this film, it was actually a reshoot, and that was to incorporate the aforementioned Alice Cooper impalement gag. Carpenter had originally cast for that role fantasy horror writer Dennis Etchison, who did several of the film novelizations for Carpenter's prior movies, and with whom Carpenter was at that time working with to incorporate quantum physics into the script meant for Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, that was later scrapped when Carpenter sold the franchise rights. Now, Etchison's acting range for that role was pretty limited, so they secured a more professional actor, Tom Bray. Carpenter did still keep kind of an homage to Etchison. He called the character Etchinson instead of Etchison. Etchinson was deliberately misspelled. That was an in-joke because on the book cover for Etchison's novelization of The Fog, they had misspelled it. Etchison, played by Tom Bray, is depicted as listening on his Walkman to a song by Alice Cooper that he specifically made for the movie called... Of course, Prince of Darkness, that was shortly he's impaled by Cooper himself. Now, Prince of Darkness was released on October 23rd, 1987. And given its low budget, it actually was a pretty big hit. It debuted at number two in its initial week. That was just behind Fatal Attraction, which coincidentally Carpenter had turned down directing Fatal Attraction as being some sort of knockoff of Play Misty for me. But Prince of Darkness, of course, took in a lot less money then Fatal Attraction. It took in about $14 million overall during its run off of its $3 million budget. Now, while this was financially successful, unfortunately, the critics were not quite on board with what Carpenter was doing here. Critics were wondering why Carpenter's creative control, you know, the reason why he was doing this movie was to make something that was different than what the studios were making. And they felt that this was an inferior film. It rehashed a lot of story elements from Carpenter's prior films. Also, slasher films 
at that time had been glutting the market in this way that turned away a lot of critics, and the other horror films at that time were considered jokey comedies that mostly made fun of the genre, and here was one that was taking it absolutely seriously. It felt very antiquated to a lot of people. Critics deemed horror at this time as passé and found the plotting within Prince of Darkness as incoherent. Critics, by and large, have tended to view horror as a kind of an inferior genre, and they thought that Carpenter here was regressing by making another entry. Now, there is kind of a lumbering buildup, but I do think that the tension does ratchet up when the evil starts to get unleashed for its second half. It, it really doesn't get any less silly. You know, these schizos roaming the church's perimeter, that's kind of a goofy reiteration of the gangs in Assault on Precinct 13. But the scenes that are internal to the church, I do think, carry some pretty good jolts. I mean, you know, this is another siege film for John Carpenter with many similarities, especially to The Thing. You know, you have scientists assimilating with evil in ways that threaten the world if that evil were to get out. So it really is covering a lot of the same ground. But still, Carpenter, along with many other fans of Carpenter, call this one of his most underrated films. Carpenter thinks that many critics and many genre fans as well were used to simplistic, exploitative horror in the 1980s, and they ignored following the themes, and they didn't bother following the plot, so they misunderstood it. In later years, as horror became more sophisticated, horror fans rediscovered Prince of Darkness as an overlooked example of sophisticated horror, and it became another Carpenter classic, a cult film for many today. I think one aspect that makes Prince of Darkness somewhat different than a lot of films that were being done during the 1980s is that in contrast to what's usually in horror films, a fear of the unknown, Carpenter really is doing something different here. He's delving into the fear of knowing. In the pursuit of religious and scientific explanation, something evil here gets unleashed into the universe. And this fits in with something he alludes to in the course of the film, he uses the Schrodinger cat metaphor, the conundrum that's a reference within the film in which a cat is in a box and that cat is neither alive nor dead, at least until somebody opens the box and observes it. And that follows this theme that the search for knowledge can lead to self-destruction when you're dealing with something on the atomic and subatomic levels, you know, the things that we cannot see. And this foreshadows the existence of the anti-god, this god that walked the earth before humanity's existence, before passing to the dark side, and doesn't manifest itself directly into our lives until this canister, this cylinder, is studied by the authorities in science and religion. So this is kind of a, a philosophical and spiritual horror flick. It's not just existing to give you cheap scares although you could still enjoy it on that level. So ever since, it has been reappraised by some critics as this overlooked film in John Carpenter's career, and a few have even championed it as one of his best films. Others have gone on to say that there are allegorical qualities within Prince of Darkness, specifically to the AIDS epidemic that overtook the 1980s. You have an enemy here, evil here, spreading like a virus through fluid transmissions, usually from one person to another through their body fluid, Carpenter has been approached in interviews about that. He claims that he actually wasn't thinking about AIDS while he was writing the script, but he does acknowledge that the metaphor certainly can apply. Producer Larry Franco, he seemed to be one of the people that didn't quite understand what Carpenter was making here, even though he is the producer. He says that Prince of Darkness was a lot of movie for very little money, and it did not deliver 
anything story-wise. Few people other than Carpenter really understand fully the plot that he was trying to push forward, and I think that's partially because of the nature of quantum mechanics concepts as well as Lovecraftian horror aspects. Those are very difficult to translate into a visual form. Some who don't even understand what's going on within the movie still enjoy it for the nightmarish tone, very similar to the way that they enjoy Dario Argento's films like Inferno and Suspiria, many featuring insects as harbingers of doom, just like this one. The Antigod here, we learn that roamed the earth in the Precambrian age when life consisted primarily of these anthropods and worms and certainly kinds of beings that probably would be allied with him considering the long history he has had in the modern day. Prince of Darkness is considered, you know, retroactively the second entry in John Carpenter's Loose Hanging Apocalypse trilogy that came between the first entry, The Thing, and the third entry, In the Mouth of Madness. And I do think that as intriguing as the ideas are within Prince of Darkness, trying to decipher what Carpenter was trying to do, at least to me, is much more entertaining than watching him do it. There are many brilliant ideas that he does bring into this film. I love all the illusions and having to decipher what certain things mean, but still so many of these ideas are competing for existence in this very short film, the film's coherence does begin to unravel. There's still, even though I dissected this film on my second watch, many aspects that I don't quite get, but there are still other flaws in this film. The romantic aspects specifically are pretty vapid. The humor that does exist here usually is feels pretty forced, especially when Dennis Dunn starts riffing his shtick comedically. And there are some aspects of the plot that feel very recycled, not only from a host of other influences that I've mentioned earlier, but also Carpenter's prior films certainly are regurgitated to a large extent here. But I have to say, in, in researching this film and listening to John Carpenter in a variety of different interviews, Carpenter himself seems to admit that the plot doesn't really hold up to scrutiny. The execution is not quite as good as I think the intention. So for me, I'm going to give it a very modest recommendation if you're a John Carpenter fan of three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means that I do think it is a worthwhile film if you're into what I consider to be very layered horror films and you're really a big John Carpenter fan, I think that you should definitely give this a try. In fact, I think this is the kind of movie that you should probably watch, like I did this week, more than once. And as you start to decipher what's really going on in the film, I think that repeat viewings may make you like this film more each time. So who knows what I will think on the next watch. Maybe I'll even love it by then. But for now, three stars out of four is what I give Prince of Darkness. And just so you know, I probably would have given it about two and a half on the first watch. So it did go up for me on the second time I viewed it. Anyway, if you have your own thoughts on Prince of Darkness or maybe something that you think I misunderstood or maybe something I left out, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. All of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me. Email me if you so desire. As far as what I'm going to be doing next week, well, you know, it's a movie that could fit in with the evil ooze. In fact, the sequel for the movie I'm going to be doing next, much more so, I'm going to be doing one of the most requested films for around the world in 80s movies from people who have written to me, 1984's Ghostbusters. One of my favorite comedies, not only of the 80s, but of all time. So looking forward to that. Until next time, thank you so much for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Hello. Hello. Hello.
Death. 